1: We're back again. We are starting today with a new series. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are starting. Well, we we kind of started at the end of the last episode. We kind of went over the the sources that uh, Emily is using to do a lot of the research on this. So we are starting First Samuel, um, which is going to be really interesting. There's a whole lot of narrative here, and I'm sure it's going to be great. I, I I'm excited to to kind of get a really good solid overview of of the history and and how it all played out so
2: yeah well this is a book that in the in bible stories we tend to pull out just as individual stories because it's got some great individual stories Mm -hmm. and we don't often see how they play together so yeah i think this is going to be a fun a fun thing to go through and i i'm excited but before we jumped into that, I wanted to, to hit on a couple of more points on the inter, uh, introduction stuff. Now, if you want to talk about what sources, like you said, last episode, go back and yeah. check those.
1: Yeah, no, this is yeah. definitely still an intro episode. No. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not
2: I'm yeah. trying to rush
1: things along. <laughs>
2: <laughs> kind of fooled me. No. Uh, so, but no, I wanted to talk a little bit about why this is a difficult uh, document. I talked last week about why, uh, you know, the Masoretic text is not a great source sometimes because of the way the language has been. It uses old terms. It uses different spellings for things that we may not have have noticed, but it's more than just that. For scholars, it poses a difficulty because it is, um, you know, is it a historical book? Right. Does it record historical events or is this strictly a religious book? And so this comes into play when we're looking at archaeology and what do we do with uh, discoveries from that time period? Can we say they confirm the events of Samuel or can we, do they disprove? Mm. Now, the good news is so far, we can't disprove Samuel through archaeology, but because it is those narrative stories where we have events and conversations, archaeology really can't prove that either. Okay. So we, we have to be careful, but you know, one of the things that scholars, I think, should keep in mind is we have king lists from Samaria and different nations, and these are seen as historical documents. Mm-hmm. So why are we discounting this one? Just a question that I'm throwing out there.
1: Well, uh, OK, so it, it is kind of interesting. And, and for, for a really in-depth kind of look at this, it's... A lot of times, um, and Heiser addresses this on one of his episodes, and I think it's when he starts the Exodus series. I believe it's at the beginning of that, um, so we can, Sounds about right. we can look that up. He talks about how uh, biblical material tends to be discounted because it's it's what's called myth um, mythologized history, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, I'm not saying that the Bible is myth. I know people right. who, who aren't in... Who don't listen to a lot of scholastic stuff or don't do a lot of scholastic work, they hate the idea when you, they hear mythology right thrown around in biblical text. But what what that just means is that there's historical events, and then there's a supernatural explanation attached to those events. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he tells an interesting story about in his own life something that happened, and he you know kind of sees it as God answering a prayer and and putting him in a in the right position. Um, so. He says, as soon as we do that, it's a mythologized history of his own life right. story. So um, that, I mean, to 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 give you an answer mm-hmm. to, to the question of why it gets discounted, I mean, I know you knew that answer <laughs> right, already, but-, but I know you're you, I know you're being rhetorical. But for for anyone listening, that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. um, that it does tend to get overlooked. Um, so uh, just because there are. Just because there is this side of it where someone's trying to explain how history changed with God being involved. Right. Doesn't necessarily mean that the physical events that happened didn't happen. Correct. So. um Well, that's,
2: and I could point out, like, even with the king list I talked about, those kings were seen as gods mm-hmm. or representatives of gods. So, so they're mytholo- mythologized history. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. And so. We need to be aware as scholars that sometimes the, the lines that are drawn are, are kind of arbitrary if you try to apply the same principle across the board. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to dismiss certain things just because they don't fit with our worldview. And because, you know, I've learned a lot of stuff from Canaanite and Mesopotamian and Ugaritic uh, literature and things that I've read that helped me understand the Bible better. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with the worldview they present but it does give me context and it gives me an ability to understand the mindset of the people of that time, sure. including the Israelites. Yeah. So we talked some last week about uh, how the, the Septuagint was used to kind of fill in some of the gaps of the Masoretic. But I wanted to point out too, we also have several different um, sources that have been used along the way. Uh, the Targum of Jonathan, the Syriac Peshitta, the Latin Vulgate and Josephus all have also been used to help fill in those, those confusing parts Mm -hmm. of this book. And like I said, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they found three scrolls that had at least sections and parts of Samuel Mm -hmm. in there. So we've got a good deal of information from the Dead Sea Scrolls there at Qumran. And
1: And, and one thing, and and we've mentioned this before, I just want to throw mm -hmm. this out too. Um, I, sorry yeah, to, no. to interrupt, but something that that occurred to me is 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 uh something we mentioned before is that you know where the the relying on the uh, the Septuagint mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes they they do you know scholars use that for clarity because its translation sorry. would have been oh sorry uh, I guess Siri decided to chime in um but the the that Greek translation would have been based on a, an older. Mm-hmm. Uh, original hebrew version correct so that's why we we sometimes will use that to clarify the masoretics in, in case anyone was kind of confused about why because that, that confused me for a long time it's like why mm-hmm. why would you consult this greek text to clarify uh the original but mm-hmm. it's you know the masoretic is not necessarily original
2: well and um, i had the same question yeah when i started and, this yeah work. it took me
1: a long time to figure that out and I, and it was I, I know I've been referencing her a lot lately, but Marian Brand, <laughs> it was her series that actually finally made it click for me as mm-hmm. to why that it would make sense to do that, because it's based on an older version that we don't have anymore. Right. So, um...
2: And because the Masoretic wasn't assembled until a thousand years later, and so right. roughly, and that's the thing. And when we when we talk about Samuel in particular, one of the problems that people have with the Septuagint, they think that possibly... The scribes expanded the verses so Mm -hmm. that there was more clarity or read smoother, which is something scribes are known to do. Sure. And that's one of the reasons why translators sometimes want to reject the Septuagint, where the Masoretic, the argument against that is that sometimes maybe verses were skipped and Mm -hmm. that certain phrases were skipped. And we're actually going to see a passage where there is that debate and it's going to come up very quickly.
1: Yeah. but I mean, and... and for those of you who have, I know it's more common in more study Bibles too. I mean, you'll even see in the English translations mm-hmm. some of them will actually have footnotes for those times when this appears uh, in certain documents. Right. And it, it, they'll either uh, it depends on the Bible. Some of them will add it in the mm-hmm. footnote, or some mm-hmm. of them will have it right in the line and then have a footnote that says this does not appear. Right. In you know in and, and sometimes the they'll
2: be in italics. So different mm-hmm. versions have different ways of denoting that. So. You know, pay attention to that stuff. That that kind of gives you a little idea of the process that it, the Bible's gone through to reach you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's also, important.
1: And also that the, the, the translators are working to be as transparent as they can mm-hmm. um, with the limitations of the English language.
2: Right. Well, and in space, I mean, we don't have room to record all of the stuff for the average person. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if you want to get into it, as we've said before, you can find books on this topic on Amazon, and maybe that's something I need to do: is to pull some good sources and get yeah. some links for people yeah, who might let's want throw to throw those focus. in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the other difficulty in this book is theological, and I know nobody wants to hear that when we talk uh, about scripture that there could be theological difficulties with the book. <laughs> but again, acknowledge it, work through it, don't ignore it. Uh, some of those theological differences are things like was. Saul chosen or was he rejected? And, you know, I'm with the little Taco Bell girl. Why not both? Uh, so then... I, is that a new commercial? I, yeah, I, I haven't
1: <laughs> watched commercials and I don't know how long.
2: Yeah, it, it's not terribly new because I referenced it. I do all but, my stuff through streaming services
1: now. It's, I don't see commercials anymore. It's great. It's, yeah, I love it.
2: So uh, the other thing was, you know, did God make a mistake when he chose Saul? Is David a noble king or is he a brutal no- murderer? How can he be a man after God's own heart, given all of the different things that he does in these passages? Because, by the way, Samuel does not present David in a very good light. A lot of times, they're they're very raw and almost mean about some of the things David does.
1: Yeah, well, and I I do have a a, a hypothesis about why there was Saul and then David, but. I'm gonna wait until we get there. Okay. So okay.
2: Yeah. But if you look at uh, particularly Kings and uh, and Chronicles, and compare and contrast the the what's in these books, uh, Samuel through Kings and Chronicles, the the comparison being through there, Chronicles p- paints a much better picture of David, mm-hmm. but it was written much later, and it's more of a political document. Right. It,
1: uh, well, and that, and that's what. Uh, uh, Dr. Brand mm-hmm. uh, talks about yeah, Maryam Brand on this uh, Understanding Sin and Evil podcast. Mm-hmm. I haven't said the name of this episode, so if anyone wants to look it up, uh, she talks about that. How there's there's two different purposes for those mm-hmm. sets of books, and Samuel and Kings um, is about uh, how is it if we're God's chosen people, how did we lose the promise? Right. Land? And so then when they're trying to get people to move back to the promised land, First and Second Chronicles is like well, why would we want to move back to the promised land? And then they're like, well, don't you know about our great heritage?
2: <laughs> yeah, we're wonderful. We're blessed. And it's it's not to say that the books are in contradiction, but when you look at different applications of writing, and there are different genres of writing, and this mm-hmm. is the reason why if you look in a Jewish Bible as opposed to a, an English Bible, you're going to find that Chronicles is in the writing, the Ketuvim, where First and Second Samuel, First and 2, Samuel, 1, 2 Kings, are part of the prophets, hmm. and and it's put in the prophets because in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, the activity of the prophets plays such a vital role to what's happening. And where mm-hmm. when we think of prophets, we think of the words of the prophets. Sure. So we think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and those books, not necessarily um, what the prophets are actually doing. And that's what Samuel really talks about. And we're going to get into that because the, the interaction between the prophets and the kings is amazing.
1: There's, there's that in, in um, the, the, the interaction and also seeing a lot of the prophetic books. And this is something I'm hoping you're going to do is whenever we get to a part where there's reference mm-hmm. in the prophets, where we can see how the some of the, the prophecies are talking about what's going on in those right. days and how if we if we don't look at how they're actually applied and, and how they were mm-hmm. interacting with history, that it can really lead us to some very bad theology.
2: Yeah. Well, and it does. And the thing is we've got to we've got to bear in mind that it wasn't the Bible wasn't written in the order that we have it. Right. You know, the prophets were operating during the time of the monarchy primarily. Mm-hmm. Matter of mm-hmm. fact it, it's such a connection that there I believe it's von Beren. I, I, I don't remember, but he he states that the the prophecy basically, the office of prophet basically came into existence with a monarchy mm-hmm. and died with a monarchy. I disagree with that. I think there's evidence to the contrary. However.
1: Well, I mean, you would have to, to see that with uh, Abraham, Moses' sister. Um,
2: Miriam, Abraham, Abraham Moses. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: Deborah, mm-hmm. you know, uh, operating before and during the times of the judges. Precisely. So that's. Yeah, I I think that's a little that's yeah. stretching.
2: I, I but I think the fact that he even makes that statement kind of gives sheds light on the idea of how closely connected they are. Mm-hmm. So uh, disagree with it in totality, but understand the insight that he's trying to give. And but Bergman says that despite all of these these problems that that people are encountering, that they're they're kind of overcome by by paying attention to the fact that this is an inspired work Mm -hmm. and we need to look at the artistic merit and we need to be paying attention to how the writer is using these different ideas to form a complete narrative. So Mm -hmm. you've got to be sensitive to the text and it's not something you can just kind of run roughshod over and say, oh, well, this is what it has to mean, Mm -hmm. or it is going to come out very piecemeal and very contradictory. And he suggests that we pay attention in particular to three different, um, Three different factors in what's going on here. Number one, we, we need to be paying attention to the historical um, situation. Now, this is a time of transition. We're going from the bloody brutality of the judges to a monarchy. Mm-hmm. And the monarchy is going to rise, be this golden kingdom, this golden age, but then it's going to fall. And the, eventually it's going to have to be taken down because it's failing to represent the true king the God of Israel.
1: Yeah. Well, I, when you said we're going from the bloody brutality of the judges and I'm like, to the bloody brutality of the kings. I
2: mean, no, that, you're right. And because that's the thing. Anytime people think they're in charge of something, they mess it up. And that's kind of what judges is about. They, they thought people, diff, different people thought they were in charge of things. And instead of paying attention to God, the true king, and then the king really becomes uh, the king of Israel later really thinks, "Oh, well, I'm the king of Israel. We've been uh, created by God, so we have this divine protection, and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what we mm-hmm. do." And that's not the truth, and this is why they wind up in exile. Um, hopefully, that's not too many spoilers, but I'm assuming people know a little bit. Yeah,
1: it, and yeah, and we, and that's you know, it, people are familiar with it, and it doesn't. I mean, in the way <laughs> we're going through this, it doesn't hurt to give an overview to kind of give an idea of where we're going, right? Um, so that you can kind of see how we get there
2: yeah and you know and and by all means read ahead don't don't just uh wait for us to get there right but these these historical factors they also include uh, you know we're moving into the iron age at this point the philistines were were really perfecting the making of irons we're moving out of the bronze into the iron this changes the weapons of war Mm -hmm. this changes how warfare is conducted the hittites they're losing power at this point um the egypt really is too for a time and these technological social factors really play into what the monarchy and the kingdom look like. So we need to be paying attention to that. We've got to pay attention to David. David is an overwhelming personality. He is bigger than life. And to to really delve into who he is, I mean, it's a psychological journey beyond compare. And we see that particularly in the Psalms. Um, but he's not just this this overwrought emotional in, individual. He's got a shrewd political mind. Mm-hmm. He's smart. And he's also a very flawed person. And so we're, we're going to have to grapple with his personality. But ultimately, we've got to deal with this kind of apparent contradiction that God is both the sovereign over Israel, but he's also very intimate. He's going to exert his power and rule in the reign of Israel, but he's also going to intervene in the lives of individuals. And that's kind of contradictory and really at odds with what we see in other gods of this time period. They don't interact with their subjects the way that the God of Israel does. Right, And it foreshadows how Christ becomes embodied so that he can interact with humanity on that very intimate level and then later the Holy Spirit. And all of this plays into the sacred history that Samuel is presenting. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's talk about the, the title too, since we're, we're here. Um, Samuel did not write this book. At least he didn't write most of the book. Uh, he dies kind of early on. But the, name, the, the book is named after Samuel because he is the kingmaker, he's the one who decides who's going to rule Israel. And it's because of that power and his um, appointment by God to serve as this this prophet who who creates that change mm-hmm. from judges to kings that the book remembers and honors him and the book is divided into first and second Samuel as as everyone knows and this was done during the first century B.C. because this was the standard length of a scroll and in reality it's not just first and second Samuel it's First, Second Samuel, First and Second King are all one book. Right. And during that time, they were divided. When they were divided according to the length of the scrolls, uh, they were known as the book of the the four books of the kingdoms, the Basileon uh, Alpha through Delta. Huh. And so that's, that's cool. yeah, that's the Septuagint. In uh, the Vulgate, later it becomes First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. So it, this is the reason why sometimes in the different manuscripts we have endings at different points. If you look in our Bibles, um, David dies in the first book of Kings, uh, Kings two through a two eleven. But in some of the older Greek manuscripts, that actually is part of Second Samuel. So the death hmm. of David would be at the end of Second Samuel instead of the beginning of First Kings. Okay, which actually I think makes more sense. And yeah,
1: well, I, yeah, I can see that because that's whenever you actually get into the major political intrigue.
2: Oh, yeah, this is when we're totally moving away from just being a holy nation to being a political figure. And that really begins to happen under Solomon. Mm -hmm. And Solomon, he's a trip. But anyway, we'll get to him later. So who wrote the massive book, because this this is a massive book when you realize that it encompasses those four books of our English Bible. Uh, There's three main possibilities. One is that Samuel did contribute to the first part of the book that covers most of his life. Mm Uh, the second is Gad, the seer. We're going to talk about where you find him. And of course, Nathan. Uh, they're all prophets. They all witnessed the events that happened. Mm-hmm. And so that makes sense. Um, they could also be drawn from the book of Jasher, not the book of Jasher that you're going to buy mm-hmm. on Amazon. We've, I think we've covered that one in an episode. Um, that one's lost to us, but it is referenced in 2 Samuel 2.18 the court records of david that's in first chronicles 2724 so we could be drawing from those sources okay the records of samuel the seer referenced in first chronicles 2929 29, and also in that verse as the records of uh, gad the seer okay so we know that these books existed we just don't have them and uh, i know many historians who would give their right arm if we could lay our hands on them
1: like a legitimate copy <laughs>
2: Uh yeah. Oh, I, I I would be like ready to give up a fingertip at least. So anyway,
1: <laughs> there's a, a lot of caves. Maybe we'll <laughs> keep digging.
2: Yeah. Samuel itself never tells us who, who wrote it. Um, and that makes dating the book very difficult. Right. Because if we knew who wrote it, then we could put him in the timeline somewhere. Now, we do have clues from the text. Um, first, Samuel um, it, it makes mention of the length of David sorry makes mention of the length of King David's reign. Okay, and so it had to have happened after his reign. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think from the way some of the things are spoken about in Second Kings, and well, you can't write about something until after those events have happened. Well, typically,
1: yeah. I mean, unless you're doing <laughs> prophecy, I mean, but. You know, like,
2: well, this is a prophecy, but yeah, <laughs> right.
1: It's different. It's it, yeah, yeah, exactly. More a prophetic message about behavior rather than <laughs> exactly, uh, you know, future fortune telling or however most people perceive prophecy.
2: And some of these events include like the division of the kingdom after Solomon. Mm-hmm. And you'll look at some of the the clues in the text even before the kingdoms divided. You start to get these indicators that the writer wants you to realize that there is a schism developing between Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms. Right. So we know it was probably written after the kingdom divided. Uh, There's textual notes, uh, clarifying terms that were used up until the 8th century. So we know that um, it was written no later than than the 8th century, at least the final form. Right. And we have these reflective theological insights, uh, I think it was Burgerman who pointed that out, that suggests that, you know, there's been some time between the event that happened mm-hmm. and this interpretation that's being put on it by the writer.
1: Yeah, no, that, that would make sense.
2: Yeah, so basically the bottom line is some of the uh, material could have very well predated the reign of David, so that put about 110 BCE. and. But it was added onto or or kind of curated up until the eighth century. So th- this this collection of writing really took place over a long period of time. And like we said, we had that whole list of possible sources that could have been drawn from. I said one ten. Did you mean eleven hundred? Uh, ten ten. Sorry. Ten ten. Okay. Ten ten. I heard one ten. No, like, I think that's, I said one ten. Pretty modern. Yeah, no, that's one. Yeah, <laughs> me and numbers don't. So, yeah, okay. So, what what we can say with no equivocation about this book is the writer one hundred percent believed in the authority of the Torah, and he affirms this over and over again within the book, and we're going to see examples of that. He values uh, he she they uh, they value prophetic activity because mm-hmm. that's what so much is of. The book is records. Uh, they recognize the importance of the Levites in Israel's foundation and their structure as a holy nation. And the the story of the Levites is woven in as subtext. And these are some of the texts that we don't typically pick up and teach in the Bible. So that's going to be fun to mm-hmm. to go into. Yeah. Uh, also, the one of the main reasons this book is written is to affirm the, the rule of King David. Because there is some debate: is he the rightful king? Should Saul and his heirs inherit the throne? Was was David some kind of you know revolutionary upstart who shouldn't have been on the throne? These are all questions that were part of that time, and that the people were grappling with. And how does this affect our identity as a nation? But the the book of Samuel really affirms that David is God's choice. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So, the purpose of the book really is about recording sacred history, giving us some insight into how Israel became a nation, what that looked like, and how that plays out theologically. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my background on it. And we can begin with the actual text. Okay. Well, yeah.
1: So yeah, I'm excited because there's, I I know this is going to, we're probably going to be in here for what the rest of the <laughs> probably through the summer.
2: Yeah, at, at least. least. Yeah. a lot of it's going to depend on how often I pull myself back from <laughs> the randomness that I can get into. Yeah. So I, before we I know I said,, I'll the interest stuff done, but before we really jump into the text specifically, I want to point out again, and I can't say this enough, this is happening during the period of the judges. This is opening up during that time of the Levite and the concubine, when there's a civil war mm-hmm. that's ripped the nation apart, Benjamin has almost been destroyed, 600 women have been stolen from their homes and given to strange men, mm-hmm. and all of this stuff is going on uh, during that fra- during that time period where the phrase that marks it is, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Yeah. So,
1: So basically everything up until Saul is... In the Judges period.
2: Exactly, exactly. And we, we've got several events within the first chapters of Samuel that connects us back to Judges. The writer wants you to, to know that these books should be connected, and the writer doesn't want you to miss this. So just three of the things that connect us back. There's Levites who fail to act as proper spiritual leadership. Right. This is in the opening, like I said, seven chapters. There's sexual misconduct at Shiloh. We just left behind Shiloh where the the 200 women were stolen and raped. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Levites are involved in tragic warfare. Now, the biggest connection, of course, is that Samuel is the last judge of Israel. And he is the second judge to be named as a prophet and a judge. The other one being, of course, Deborah. And they also, if you look at the places where Samuel lives and working ministers, you're going to find this is in the same location as Deborah, Hmm. also connecting them. And so there are lots of connections. And we're going to go over those as we, we're going to point them out as we go through the story. We're also going to see several connections to Moses. Um, Moses and Samuel share a same kind of template for their life. And Samuel is really cast as that prophet-like unto Moses that's going to come again. Okay, And so the Hebrew people really saw him as a fulfillment of that prophecy. And Psalms 90, nine six says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. So mm-hmm. there's always been this understanding that there is a connection. Now, there's two main themes uh, in, in Samuel that we're also going to be watching out for. One is kingship, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, we should see pretty easy. And the the second theme is the power of the marginalized. Those people who are not accepted by society, those people who have been pushed out and that God still recognizes and uses to shape a nation. Yeah. That's going to come through um very clearly. So first one. Gonna read that one. It says, there was a certain man, Aramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, and then there's a genealogy that follows. Okay. Okay. If some of these sound familiar, it's because these are locations that we just talked about. So Elkanah, let's talk about the, some meanings first. Elkanah means God created. Okay. So we, we have this, this anticipation that God's going to create something. hmm and he, he's sending the tone. Ramathim means two heights. So it's between two mountains. And we just talked about how in Shechem, there was um, the uprising there with Bimelech uh, mm-hmm. and Gael between yep. the two mountains. Zophim, the Zophite, was the name of the land belonging to the Zophite clan. Now, the Zophite clan were part of the, the Levitical tribe. So they're, they're Levites. And he is saying that he is a Levite, not only uh, the genealogy will establish that, but also the geography establishes that Elkanah is a Levite. So therefore, Samuel is a Levite.
1: Yeah, okay, that would make sense.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, this connects us. He's an Ephraim, the hill country of Ephraim. Where did our last Levite come from?
1: The hill country of Ephraim. So, um, Okay, go ahead. I (laughs) I have a question about Hannah when we get there. Okay,
2: so Uh, so... the Levite to- a town in the hill country of Ephraim is Gibeah, mm-hmm. and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him at Gibeah, and this is the town where Phineas, his son, had been given also back in the hill country. So that's in Joshua 24, 33 that records this. Mm-hmm. So very strong connections to the place where it was ground zero, for Israel just imploding. Right. Um, at the end of the verse, it says he's an Ephrathath, Ephrathite. That's a fun word to try to say. Ephrathite. This is somebody from Bethlehem. Where did the Levite travel to? And where was the, you know, the Levite with concubine travel to Bethlehem to hmm. claim his bride? Where in the previous story with the Levite and Micah, the, the Levite was from Bethlehem.
0: Right, right.
2: So we've got Levites, the hill country of Ephraim, Gibeah. Phineas, the Shiloh, and Bethlehem, all of these things are, are connecting us right back to Judges. Mm-hmm. And the writer doesn't want you to miss this. And this is why in the, in the Jewish Bible, Judges is right before 1 Samuel and Ruth is moved to a later place. So yeah. his home, and therefore Hannah's home, was in the middle of this devastation, right there in the center of everything going on. And now think about this. Hannah's the wife of a Levite living in the same area where the wife of a Levite had been attacked in such a horrible way, Mm -hmm. had her body cut up and sent across the nation. It's really not inconceivable that Hannah actually knew the concubine. Yeah. Same time period. Levites were all related. They're all serving at the temple at different Mm -hmm. times. Wow yeah I hadn't considered that before. that's pretty wild it 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 changes the entire story, and this is not just oh well, here's where they're at no. well
1: it it also it changes the story it puts a lot more uh emphasis on on Hannah praying at the temple desperately mm-hmm. because you know she's basically coming to a point where she's saying we've 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 screwed it up mm-hmm. um, and the the solution that that the Israelites put forth—that's unacceptable, right? And so, yeah, that's yeah, that's very telling.
2: I, and I think we, when we make this story about a woman who just wants to have a child, it's kind of like—and I'm not discounting anyone who, who's had to deal with you know struggles and conce- conceiving or anything like that. Yeah, that's a hard thing to go through, and I've walked with friends through it. But I think that's the church's way sometimes of just paying a nice little bow on it and oh is that sweet because this is what you as a woman are supposed to want you're supposed to want children Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be that wife and mother and Hannah's story we're going to find out it's not just about being a wife and mother it's about so much more
1: well yeah well it makes it sound like she's only concerned about herself
2: and she's not and we're going to actually prove that from the text
1: (laughs) yeah let's yeah So sorry i'm not i'm not trying to get ahead but that's yeah it really does it it makes it seem like Oh well, she's just so desperate, and 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 we also twist that, and Mm -hmm. we we twist that in so many sermons that I've heard about it. Is that well, if there is something you desperately want that you don't have, and you pray for it, and -hmm. God gives it to you, you should
2: give it 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 away.
1: Give it away, and Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's the message we're necessarily supposed to get out of this. I mean, sure, everything we own, uh, everything it's God's God's anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just. The The way the message is there, and it's like, if you're not prepared to immediately lose the thing that God gives you, don't ask for it, I think is what yeah. the, that's the, that's not the message that's preached, but that's the underlying message mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, of what. I've heard the, these sermons. Yeah. It's <laughs> the natural outflowing of, of well, what's being said. And it's we
2: like, had a conversation yesterday, I think we talked about how people don't look at, you know, playing the conclusion out to its finality. We We want to say something that sounds mm-hmm. good. But we don't want to look at what it, the implications really are, and we got to do that if we're going to be responsible. Yeah, with yeah, our words.
1: Have, yeah, we have to look at the logical implications of mm-hmm. of, of what we say. And oh man, so, so
2: okay, verse two. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, verse two. Elkanah has two wives. He has Hannah and Penina. Um, Hannah is mentioned first, so she is probably the first wife. Okay. And um, the tradition, and again, this is tradition. This is not in the Bible. That Hannah and Penina, were, uh, Hannah and Elkanah were married ten years, and then Hannah suggested that Elkanah take the second wife. If that is true, then tradition at least connects Ruth and Hannah together, mm-hmm. and but it also connects Hannah and Sarah together when she encourages Abraham to take Hagar. Right. Again, this is reading between the lines, adding some tradition. I'm not going to say that's that's scriptural, but I do want to point out that the tradition has been there for at least, you know, since 150 AD. So but, for a while. Yeah. So barren women, you know, we know that this is a major theme in Genesis, Sarah, Rebecca and Rachel, all barren. And and in putting her in this position, the writer's really saying that she is a woman who's going to give birth to a new age, okay. to a new um a new manifestation of the covenant community. She's kind of being put on that level of the matriarch. That's
1: exactly what I thought you were going to say.
2: Yeah. And specifically with, with um, Sarah and Hagar, because there is a second wife involved. Mm-hmm. So first three, every year uh, Elkanah would go up to worship at Shiloh uh, and he'd worship the the Lord of hosts. This is the first time we have that phrase. And Host can refer to the angelic bodies, but normally it refers to an army. And in this context, it seems like we're referring to an angelic army. And when you consider all of the warfare that's going on in Judges, and remember that the wars were not wars between people, they're wars between gods.
0: Uh
2: This is a, it makes sense that this is how Elkanah is going to be referring to God. That the, he would be on God's side. He he sees God as the God warring on behalf of, of Israel. And we find that this term, after this point, the prophets pick it up and they use it extensively. I think Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel use it over 50 times each.
1: Sure. yeah, so. It's pretty common and, and you have to have heard it if you grew up in church. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are some questions because it says he goes up yearly. Um there's three yearly festivals, so we don't really know which one he is he's going to, because it could be the um, Sukkot, it could be Pesach, uh, Passover, um, and I forget what the other one is. But he is doing something right. He he's he's observing the Torah to some extent, and he he is worshiping at this at the correct place, which we haven't seen very often. Now there is a uh, in Hebrew, I forget the term. Uh, it says he goes up and worships from time to time. Uh And the Hebrew word is the exact same word that's used for the Passover. So we think possibly Passover is the most obvious, because not only do you offer up these sacrifices, you also eat with your family, which is what's going to happen. Sure. So at the end of verse three, um, it notes that there were the two sons of um, Eli there. It doesn't mention Eli at all. It just says, Hophni and Finchas were the priests of the, to the Lord. It's important. They're not going to show up for the rest of this chapter, and they're really not going to show up, I don't think, until chapter three, or I'm sorry, the middle of chapter two. And
1: Actually, I mean, it does uh, mention Eli Oh, okay, in, in the ESV. Oops. Okay. So yeah. So it's, it's the sons of Eli.
2: Okay. Um, he had two wives. Yeah. Yeah. He had two sons. See, now, um, okay, I was reading it the long, uh, wrong line. Yeah, but okay, so it does mention Eli, but the the fact that they're pointing out Eli is no longer functioning as the priest. Uh-huh. The priests are Hofty and Fincas, and they are, um, like I said, they're not mentioned again, but the writer is setting you up. He wants you to pay attention to these two guys, because they are going to show up. And there's a reason it's important that they are the priest while Hannah is there. So hang on to that. (laughs) And so verses four through eight, I kind of summarize them. Elkanah takes his entire family. Hannah receives a double portion or a a favored portion. This is one of those points where the Hebrew is unclear. It literally says two noses or two nostrils. Okay. we don't really know what that means, and
1: turkey leg. I don't know. Like, yeah. the, it's like, <laughs> like oh, yeah. the best portion of the meat.
2: It's, um, yeah, I, and that's the and well, and that's the problem because what does it mean? But I think overall, it's one of those things where I can acknowledge a problem, but it doesn't take away from the meaning of the text. Yeah, Elkanah was trying to be nice. Yeah, well,
1: is it not necessarily just trying to be nice, or is this another indicator that she was the first wife?
2: Possibly, possibly. I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't found any commentaries that that said that, but it does make sense. Um, It seems like in the text they um, actually let's look at that verse. (laughs) Yeah, on the day when Elkanah um, sacrificed, he would give a portion to Penina and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion because he loved her, through though the Lord had closed her womb. So, yeah, to be nice. I, yeah. And, wow. and God had closed her womb. Okay. And that's important that we recognize that closing her womb was God's act, that God had done this. This is not something that, oops, that just isn't happening. Right. Um, Elkanah, bless his heart. You, you got to love him. He's presented as a nice guy throughout the story. Okay. Uh, kind of a bit of a bumbling idiot. Uh, he, he tries to comfort Hannah. He, by giving her the special portion, he's actually provoking Panina, who who torments Hannah. And again, we've got that connection back to Sarah and Hagar. Mm-hmm. And But we also have a connection to Jacob and Joseph, that when you show favoritism, that you're actually incurring wrath on mm-hmm. the one that you love. And you'll notice that he does this every year. This isn't like one year he does it and oops. Yeah.
1: And wasn't, the, wasn't there also something with like Rachel and Leah with that too, where
2: yeah yeah because leah God gives her children because God sees that Jacob hates her mm-hmm. and so there's um there's some rivalry there. and matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, God later says, you know don't don't marry two sisters. You're just going to cause rivalry. Right. This is not a good idea.
1: still seems like sound advice today.
2: <laughs> right. Oh, I had like three things go off in my head. We'll just move past. So anyway, but this gives us a view of the family dynamic, and it, it also shows us Hannah doesn't want a child because Elkanah needs an heir. This isn't like Sarah wanting a son for Abraham so that his name and legacy can continue. That's been taken care of. Hannah's wanting a child for one of two reasons. She either wants it because she wants to be a mother and experience that herself, or she has something bigger in mind. And I think we're going to see that it's actually something bigger. And like I said, God had closed her, room, her womb. God is orchestrating the situation. Um, this is not meticulous determination. This is God saying, I know how you're going to react and I know what's going to happen. And so I'm going to put the right pieces in play mm-hmm. to get my outcome. But Hannah still has the ability to choose whether or not to join in this. And you can refer back to our uh, study on Deborah. Yeah. So anyway, verse nine. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah arose. Now Eli the priest was sitting in the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Okay, got a few things going on here. There's been some debate about whether or not, and you and I have even corrected ourselves on air, whether or not we should call Shiloh the temple. Well, here in First Samuel, it mm-hmm. calls it a temple. Okay, And one of the big debates is the tabernacle just set up at Shiloh. Is it a a more permanent structure? Mm -hmm. And from all the evidence, because we do have a a reference to the tent of meeting later on in Samuel, what scholars kind of think happened was that the tent of meeting, the tabernacle was set up, and then a more permanent structure was built around it. Because here he's sitting Mm -hmm. at a doorpost. You don't have doorposts in tents. So there seems to be something... uh, a little bit more substantial than just cloth at this point. And so this can refer to a house or just a very large tent. And so the, the, the language there, as far as the Hebrew, doesn't give us any um, right. indication. We kind of have to put all the little pieces together. Um, and Eli's sitting in a chair. At this point in time, not a lot of people sit in a chair. So this is more than just a chair. Mm-hmm. This is a throne. This is a place of honor. It's really showing that he is the 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 guiding governing force yeah. over the temple and he he has the authority to to judge because you would sit at the temple or the the doorway of the temple to dispense judgment. so there's the idea that he, as the high priest as um as a wise elder is dispensing judgment to the people. This is also going to become very important in chapter two. So hang on to this fact. Um, verse 10, Hannah, she's, she goes into the temple and and she's praying and literally, um, well, the ESV says deeply distressed. The Hebrew is her soul was bitter. And so hmm. she, she's not just grieving and, and sad. She's mad.
1: She's not just having a panic attack.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Because she, deeply distressed sounds like you're frantic. But, uh, you know, the the idea of if your soul is bitter, I mean, that's something that's not that that implies this is something that's ongoing.
2: Right. It's not something that just happened that day. Right. Yeah. And that's another one of those word choices that the English translators have used that kind of it, it bothers me because it's. Oh, the poor little thing. She, she's upset and mm-hmm. somebody needs to smooth her feathers. And no, this is something that's been, like you said, it's ongoing. It's been brewing in her heart. Mm-hmm. You don't get a bitter soul in a moment. Right. So. Right. So verse 11, and she vowed a vow. Very important. Oh, Lord of hosts. Again, Hannah is the first person to speak this title. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. One verse, so much information.
1: Yeah. So we're (laughs) supposed to, uh, so we hear God referred to as Lord of Mm hosts. We're supposed to think about Samson, Mm -hmm. um, Nazarite vow. Mm Mm-hmm. What else we got?
2: Oh, okay. So this is this is the prayer that rocked the world. I, the, really, so much changes in this moment. Uh, the history of the nation and really the history of the world changes with Hannah. Uh, she's the only woman who who rises up and goes to the house of the Lord. We never have a single individual woman who says, "I'm going to go and worship," or "I'm going to go and pray." She's the only woman in the Bible to make and fulfill a vow to the Lord. Interesting. Oh yeah. She's the only woman, in fact, who prays. None of the other women pray. The matriarchs, when you look at their story, Abraham never even prays for Sarah. Definitely Sarah never prays for herself. Isaac does pray for Rebecca. Mm -hmm. When Rachel goes to Jacob, he says, who am I, God? What what do you expect me to do? And Hannah is the only one out of all of these great women of faith who actually goes up before the Lord and says, I have a problem. So this is... This is a big deal.
0: Yeah,
2: um, it's one of the longest recorded prayers of the Old Testament, and it's interesting that it's from a woman. Um, three times she uses the name Yahweh. This is the most that we have anyone using the the words Yahweh, Yah, his true name, in a prayer in such a short space of time, mm-hmm. uh, length of words. Um, she's the first woman to pursue God in such a straightforward manner, where mm-hmm. everybody else like got through talking with Ruth. Deception and deceit were, were the tools that they used, because they felt like that's all they had. Hannah's the only one who just gets up, marches into the temple, and says, God, we're going to deal with this. We got a problem. Exactly. And so everything in her prayer really is connecting her back to previous figures. But at the same time, it's elevating her above the actions that they had taken. And so she really becomes this exemplary person of faith, because when you look at a vow, well, when we talk about about a vow, who's the first person who comes to mind? Back in Judges with Jephthah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they both make a vow concerning their children, whereas Jephthah kills his daughter, Hannah is going to present her son as a living sacrifice. Yeah,
1: and here we have a mother and a son versus Mm -hmm. a father and a daughter.
2: Exactly. And it's, it is that reversal. It's that statement of faith. And faith lived correctly. Mm-hmm. So she, when she prays, she connects herself back to, like I was saying, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel. Mm-hmm. And she is the one who gets it right out of those two. Uh, you know, they're barren women. And Hannah doesn't wait for her husband to get a clue because her husband's already dismissed her. Her husband's already said, forget it. You know, I'm better than 10 sons. Right. This reminds me of something dad would have said to mom. I mean, you know, it's, you know, what, what else do you need? You got me. I've heard him say those words. And it's, it's this idea that, yeah, he was trying to comfort her, but he really wasn't seeing what was bothering her. He was a man who failed to recognize his wife. Right. And instead of her resorting to deceit, she becomes more honest, more vocal, and, and more in your face than anybody else has before. Right. Right. And by calling God the Lord of hosts, she's recognizing his kingship as, as this warrior who's fighting on behalf of Israel. But he's also, she's also saying, you can fight on behalf of me. Mm-hmm. I, I deserve your attention. And like I said, she's the first person to, to call God by that title. But it gets even more interesting. Her words, look upon the affliction of your servant. These are the exact words that God speaks to Moses in Exodus 3. When God says, I have seen the affliction of my people, of my servants, mm-hmm. Hannah is really casting herself in the role of of God, of Moses interacting with God on Sinai. Mm-hmm. She's saying there's something going on here that we need deliverance from. Just like we needed deliverance from Egypt before, we need deliverance again, because there's still a problem. Right Now, I'm going to build my case, so don't dismiss that. Um out of hand, cause people, you know, that seems. No, I wasn't. I was just thinking
1: of. Uh, I was thinking of. She's kind of like saying, you know, we you delivered us from Egypt, but we kind of brought the problems with us.
2: Well, that's exa- that's exactly that is exactly because God is even going to confirm that in in uh, chapter two. He's going to say, you know, I appointed. He's talking to Hophni. Uh, he's actually talking to Eli about Hophni and Phanucas. He says, "I appointed you as." my Levites as my spiritual leadership while we were in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Why are you not acting any better than this? Right. And so Hannah's she's really placing herself here, but she's still superior to Moses in the fact that she's pursuing the role. Moses tried to avoid it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and so everything, like I said, it, it's, she is saying, hey, I see a problem. I'm going to act. And I am going to act in a way that's radically different from anybody who's gone before me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Three times she calls herself his servant, Amateka. Uh, She's recognizing her place before God. And she's saying, I know I'm just your servant. I'm nobody. I don't even belong here. I don't belong with this family. I'm not fulfilling my role here. I'm the lowest of the low is basically the title she's using is... That's what it's making her appear, but she's also using the title of Moses. Moses is called the servant of God, Joshua one uh, one, and so very seldom do we hear someone have the audacity to say, "I'm the servant of God," because mm-hmm. even as it's humbling, it's also a very exalted position. Because you know, if you're a servant, your your um, your status depends on who you serve, right and that remember do not forget to remember it is is be remembered is to have God act positively on your behalf and she she asked for a son the desire for a son you know this is common because you want to carry on the family name and and have someone to inherit the family land and also for a woman this was this was security this was someone to care for you in your old age but this isn't why hannah wants a son and that's evident in the next line then I will give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. A son who's given to the Lord can't fulfill any of the obligations of a son for a family. Right. So her reason for wanting a son has to be different. She she can't be wanting him just for herself. And the reason why she wants to give him back is going to be explained in chapter two.
1: Well, I I want to I want to just uh, ask a question here. You said Elkanah, uh, he was a Levite, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's feasible that he was, he helped with Mm -hmm. some of the, the tabernacle temple. duties, And so it's even more feasible that she would have learned from him how things were supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. during their time together.
2: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. She has assuming
1: the husband and wife talk.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And more than just, you know, patronizing little speeches about how she should be happy. But yeah, Yeah. that's and it wouldn't have been uncommon for her to know what was going on. I mean, uh, the the Levites had special clothing and and robes, and so she would have probably been the one to help make those. Mm -hmm. And um, whenever you learn how to this is one of the things about uh, Judaism, even though a lot of times women aren't included in the educational process formally to keep a kosher home or to serve a kosher meal. You have to know what the rules mm-hmm, are, mm-hmm. and along with the rules comes the explanation. So you yeah. actually learn yeah. the history and and the way things should be done through the the carrying out and application of it. So that makes sense. The women at this time weren't necessarily excluded from education. It was that their education came through a different route. And so the the fact that she had been been helping with these things, and women did serve at the temple. And matter of fact, that's spoken of in chapter two. Okay. So, um. I'm looking at where we are, so let's pick up with Samson in the next one because we do have some connections with the Samson story. Okay. As you pointed out, uh, that last line, no razor shall touch his head, and that kind of gets kind of dicey because there is a huge debate, but I want to I talk about the debate okay. because it is fascinating, and I think if we got in the middle of it, then— um,
1: We'd have just like an hour and a half episode or something. Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. Well um
1: yeah I mean we're a little little short but you know we had a longer episode a couple <laughs> weeks ago so uh yeah we'll we'll do that but I there's a, there's a ton of information and we're not even through the first <laughs> right. chapter so um yeah we're, we're, we're we might be here through the rest of the year and it's only January right now so right <laughs> will see how it goes but um
2: it's a great story I, and I love the fact that there are so many connections and I think uh when you look at Hannah just I, I can't say enough about the fact that she is bold, and she really is an example of what women today should be. Yeah. and well, I, it, Believers, period. Yeah.
1: No, <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious to see where this goes, because like I said, it, it's one of those stories we've heard hundreds of times, and I, I know there's no way we're going to exhaust everything that's in here, but I'm, I know we're going to get a lot more out of it than we would. Uh, I hope know. so. So Hopefully we'll pick up on some stuff we missed in in Bible study. So <laughs> Everyone, uh, if you want to be part of it, uh, hit us up Raven Creek SC or Ra- on social media ravencreeksc.com um, can get you in contact with us. Uh, be sure to like and share this if you enjoyed. You know, if you did like it, please share it. You right, know, <laughs> and uh, let us know. Sharing about is that. caring. Yeah, uh, leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of it. Uh, if you want to uh, help support us, hit up uh, Patreon Raven Creek uh, uh, Patreon dot com slash Raven Creek SC. And uh, maybe pass a couple bucks. But uh, if you don't want to do that, sharing is the best way to do it, or write us a review on iTunes. We definitely would appreciate that. And uh, other than that, I hope you guys have a great week, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye.
0: You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.